We had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. I hope that it can occur in a, a civil way, and I, 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 I mean civil in a special way, I, peaceful. The biggest question, in, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decade, will be what to do with all these useless people. I just see the need for such a dialogue, and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. We are 1,225 days into 14 days to flatten the curve. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson alongside the fan favorite. You know him, you love him. He's back with us for another week. Lord Marty Foster. Lord Foster, how are you? Hello. Good evening, everybody. Um, as for how I am, I am feeling under-rehearsed. Um, my play, which is a Shakespeare play, uh, based on the War of the Roses, so it's a uh, a mashup of several different Shakespeare um, English kings plays put into one very long, very complicated play called the War of the Roses, and and it starts next week. And I am uh, crapping myself, quite frankly. I've I've never felt so unprepared. But there you go. That's 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 how I am at the moment. You've got a lot of experience in theatre. I'm surprised you're actually that nervous. I don't do stage fright because at the end of the day, if it all got too much, I could just walk off and and spoil it for everybody. But it's uh, it's a new theatre company that I'm with. Um, I have done something with them in in the past, but that was a long time ago. And they've got a lot of very talented people in the company. And several of them are doing other plays at the same time as this one. So they've not been there for rehearsals. They've missed this. They've missed that. We haven't had a full cast present at any of the rehearsals until the dress rehearsal. So it's it's all been rather uh, chaotic, shall we say. Well, I, I hope that you can overcome your... Um... Stage fright, I I think, if that's the right it, word, or nervousness, or whatever you you call uh, it. I, it. I hope you can I'll, you can I'll overcome that. I'll call it concern. Concern. Okay. Well, I, I hope that I you can overcome your concern. That's not like you. That's very out of character for you. It is, isn't it? Yes, you're quite right. Anyway, how are you? Um, I'm okay. I have been a little bit rushed today, but all things considered, I'm all right. I'm ready to get down to it. So. Uh, Nigel Farage, you want to start there with the uh, the debanking that he went through? First of all, let's start with with what happened with him by being debanked. Nat West Corp, I believe, is is who debanked him. Well, it was it was um, ultimately Nat West Corporation or, or you know banking group that debanked him, but it was in particular Coots Bank, C O U T S, double T S. Double TSC, such a superfluous waste of a T. They're also, I believe, the bank that the royal family uses. And so they're, they're quite a prestigious bank. And obviously, Nigel um, didn't just have a personal bank account with him. It was a business account. And the statement, the 40-page document that some fool uh, Coots prepared said that he is perceived as xenophobic and racist, right wing, um, has far right tendencies, and is not in line with the values of the bank. The values um, of the bank. Okay, yeah. just on that point, this is the front doors of Coots Bank. So there's the values of the bank. Okay, they stand with pride. Yes. It's 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 ridiculous, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah. You know, banks are there to make money for shareholders, and because Coots with a double T, T wasting on lettering, is actually 
two-fifths owned by the great British public because it's one of the banks that was bailed out in 2008. Their only concern should be, are we making enough money to pay back to the government so that the government can spend that money where it should have been spent on the hardworking people of the United Kingdom rather than on fat cat banker bonuses? You know, these banks, and I heard this term back in 08 when the bailouts happened, these banks are zombie institutions. They have more or less zero value. They went bust back then, but we bailed them out, quote, bailed them out, when in reality, they overlent the money in the first place. And so therefore, you should go out of business. I'm sorry, you've got to face the music, Jack. You don't get bailed out. You don't screw up and then go crawling to the government, crying cap in hand, sorry to steal your thunder, and say, um, can you give us a whole bunch of taxpayer money so we can continue to do the same thing for another 15 years? That's not how this is supposed to work. And we're no. now dealing with this, this ESG garbage coming out of the World Economic Forum, not saying that they are the only culprit here, but they're one of the main drivers of it. We're dealing with this with these institutions, these financial institutions, because they weren't allowed to go bust because they were too big to fail. Yeah, that's the, that was the phrase that was leaping towards my lips, too big to fail. Well, where's the metrics for that? Who decides that? Um, I'll tell you how it was decided. It was decided on, you know, which CEO of whatever particular banking group went to school with the chancellor or with um, any other senior minister in government at the time. That was what decided whether or not they'd get bailed out uh, or, or left to go bust. But the the area where they couldn't get away from it is that under law, the banks, if they go bust, the government itself is liable to cover them through whatever insurance scheme they have for about 75% of people's investments. So the government would have been paying that money out anyway. And I'm not defending the decision, but that would have never gone back into public coffers. That would have just been paid out. Lots of people would have lost lots of money and the very rich would have lost the most money. Poor people, if you, if you lose 25% of the thousand pounds or thousand dollars that you might have in your current account or checking account in, in the US, it's going to hurt, but it's it's not going to be a huge loss. So by bailing the banks out, they were at least ensuring, this is how they justify it, that as the banks repaid through shares, through dividends back to the government, which in effect is the British people, they, they would get some of that money back. That's their excuse for it. Now here's the question. How do we prevent this from happening again before they bring in this digital currency? That becomes the main question because once that comes in, then they'll just digitize if, as if they're not doing that already. But officially, they'll just digitize whatever they need and you will never be able to get rid of them or restructure your system to be able to work properly. Well, I think in order for people to accept and not buck against central bank digital currencies, there has to be another big collapse because that will be the um, public opinion winning event that will basically act as lubricant to let them force this thing in, to coin a phrase. So, no, you're you're right. That's that's what they need, and they're counting on that. Uh, another, they're just waiting for the next financial crisis so they can say, "Well, the reason that we have this problem is because we didn't have this, so we're going to put this in so we can fix that." And then you're going to be stuck with it. Well, in the apology today that Nigel Farage received from the CEO, it's a, a lady. I can't remember her name. However, she does look like. A fat Martin Clunes. I don't know if I can say that on air, but never mind, I have. She was kind of saying, sorry, but not sorry, because we need to do a sector-wide review of processes. And to me, that, that apology just seemed like a little bit of a divisive tool uh, in which policy within banking and personal banking could be changed. 
also a sector-wide review of personal banking processes. That's what the apology said. And because this has had such a lot of publicity, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that review didn't take place and all the recommendations of that review would just force us down that route of digital currency, digital banking, 100% transparency of transactions. And as we were discussing in prep, that's kind of an own goal um, when you consider the level of corruption and dodgy payments that we are fairly sure that um, a number of politicians are receiving. Indeed. Indeed, they are. What else has been on your radar this week? I mean, I got a couple well, other things here, but what else has been bugging you this week? This is your day to let it all out, you know, lay on the leather couch and, and just let it all go. I, I, I treat I, I treat the podcast a bit like uh, a crossword. I'll see a clue and I know a bit about many, many things. And I've normally got an opinion formulated and we just go with it. So I'm, I actually enjoy when you throw things at me, I have to take a marching pause of one, two before I fire away. But I just want to finish off this bit because yeah, please go ahead. one of my least favorite things is hypocrisy. It's one of Ned's least favorite things as well. And, and uh, I'm pretty sure none of us really enjoy it if you're on the receiving end of somebody's hypocrisy. Now, do you remember that bakery that kind of got put out of business and cancelled because they refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple? I do remember, yes. So, playing devil's advocate, Nigel Farage doesn't impress people at Coots Bank. So they decided to, you know, end his right to bank with them uh, and gave him about 14 days to take his money out and put it somewhere else. That's now been rescinded, and he's been offered by the CEO alternative bankings within the NatWest group, but not at Coots. So on one hand, we're saying that shouldn't happen, that's wrong. On the other hand, some of us were quite vociferous about whether or not a business should be able to refuse to provide their services uh, on religious or political grounds. And I just think it, it, it's kind of the same thing. If I was running a business and I could afford to, because at the end of the day, that's what really drives business people, whether or not the work that they're being engaged to do is lucrative if it makes them money. But if I was running a business and I really didn't like someone, I would tell them to get lost. I wouldn't do business with them. And that's kind of what Coots did to Nigel Farage. It's kind of what the bakery owners did to the gay couple who wanted a wedding cake. You know, we, we've got to decide what's right or wrong. Is there a, a fair, right or wrong answer here? Yeah, that's a fair that's a fair argument, I have to say. I wasn't wasn't really considering it like that, but that is a fair argument. I mean, if you're a true, in my opinion, if you're a true free market person, then you believe that you have the right to refuse service to anybody for whatever reason. You don't need a specific reason, whether it's through agendas or, or whatever, but you don't need a specific reason. You can just say, you know what? I don't like you. Get out. Yeah, you you, you can. And that is rather foolishly what the people at Coots did, because the 40-page document is slanderous, it's libelous, that they, they, in, in which they describe their reasons for debanking Nigel Farage. They've made a big mistake, and now I imagine they're going to be sued. They're going to be sued by Nigel Farage and his lawyers, and two-fifths of whatever settlement he gets should have been in the pockets of British taxpayers, but isn't. Is It's never going to get there. So, you know, I, I just think that the, the two things are totally unlinked, but they share such similarities that I thought it was worth mentioning. No, it's a fair point you bring up. That That is a fair point. And that, that gives me something to think about when it comes to that. So I, I'm actually, you've really, you've given me a differing of opinion on that. I can understand the bank's point. I don't like it. Don't get me wrong. I don't like it, but you're not wrong. But the other thing that you have to consider here, just to just to round this point off, and it was mentioned on the news tonight on on um, GB News that the people on that board uh, of Coots, and you were talking about this with Melissa about these 
interlinking boards of various organisations. There's a number of people on that board who think that Nigel Farage is an anathema. He's the very worst kind of human being. And that, that looks, that seems like a total change uh, of how banks used to be. The people who sat on the boards of banks used to be conservative, you know, centre-right politics, business-driven people. And now they're making these kinds of decisions on these woke ideals, hence coots with great big pride flag across the front of its branch. There's many points to, to these arguments, and I don't know if I'm going to make a clear and decisive point, but what I am saying is how banking must have been infiltrated and subverted just the same way as politics has for these kinds of decisions to be made uh, and made public. So uh, Bruce and I talked about this yesterday, Marty, and I thought that I would get your, uh, your opinion on this one. So we had a serviceman who was in South Korea and he was facing some disciplinary oh, yes. action. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, he, glad you, I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah. He he decided he was going to um, jump across the 38th parallel and go into North Korea. And the people that were on the tour guy or the, on the tour group that he was with said that they thought that it was just like one of these TikTok pranks or something. But no, he actually jumped across the border and they've got him. Yeah, and the gentleman in question is African-American as well, isn't he? So the gentleman in question, there was a couple of things, because I listened to you and Bruce talk about it. The gentleman in question it was on a charge for assault. It, had, it would have had to have been a fairly serious assault for him to think that defecting to North Korea was a better option than a couple of months in a military prison or some other form of administrative punishment as is meted out these days by yours and my armed forces. You know, it's the, the way things are, are done these days in, in both, on both sides of the pond when it comes to military discipline and offences contrary to the Military Discipline Acts. You're entitled to a, a solicitor and a lawyer now, whereas before you'd just be up in front of the old man, wheel the guilty bastard in, tell him what punishment he's got, then listen to whether he, he pleads guilty or not, and off you go. So this guy must have done something serious to think that defecting to the most oppressive regime in the world would be better than facing the music uh, in, in the military justice system. He runs across the border, though. I mean, I, I, and I, I said yesterday, I mean, it wouldn't, even if you're you're facing all kinds of prison time, that's got to be, that's got to be preferable to go into that place. And he can't seriously think that he's going to just get out of there and be handed back over, right? They don't do things like that. You did mention on the podcast with Bruce what his rank and specialization was, didn't you? We did, yeah. Was he a private second class or third class even? Second class, yeah. Second class. So the level of information and use to a foreign power that someone who's achieved the dizzy heights of private second class. Yeah, private second class, right? So this is this is what happened. I'll just give you a brief rundown. So he was in South Korean custody on an assault charge, and he was released on July 10th. And according to witnesses, he was on one of those tours that they give along the, the DMZ there. So they, they take yeah. like the, the tours there. And they went inside one of the, uh, the buildings there that are shared, you know, for, for like conferences and stuff for the North and the South to go into. On the tour, they allow you to kind of step over the, the line there within within the building, right? When you've got our people that are in that building, so they're not going anywhere. And this is what happened. So let me see. He went from, uh, he, he was scheduled to be sent back to uh, Fort Bliss, Texas, and he was going to face additional military disciplinary charges, and he was looking at a, at a possible discharge. Uh, instead, he crossed the line. There was a witness that gave the following statement. She told the Associated Press that her tour group went a step further than many by visiting the area where they could go into the building. And, you know, they allow the tourists to say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I was in North Korea kind of thing. But that's not what 
caused this guy to do that. At, at least that's not where he did it. To get on one of these tours, you had to submit your passport and you, you have to get permits and things in advance. So all of these things were, were done. They left Seoul, right? So the capital, they left Seoul, South Korea on Tuesday morning, very early. And she said that this kid was on the bus, didn't talk to anybody else. He just kind of kept to himself. And she said that he purchased, um, you know, one of those little souvenir hats in a gift shop. And that yeah. was really about all anybody paid attention to him. So the tour was coming to an end. So he's purchased a hat. Yeah. Did it have a red star on it, like the one I had in, in Shanghai? I, I don't think so. It was one of those DMZ hats. Okay. It was one of those. Um, but it was it was coming to an end, and the group had just kind of walked out of the building. They were just kind of doing the little touristy thing and snapping photos and whatever it is the tourists do. And she saw this kid just take off running, and she said that she assumed that he was doing like some crazy TikTok video or something like that. And one of the soldiers, you, you heard of, you know the soldiers and everybody, the, the joint operation we have there, they were screaming, get that guy. Uh, and he took off and dove in between, you know, jumped across the line and dove in between two buildings, and they grabbed him up. That was the last anyone saw of him. You know, we don't know what kind of pressure mentally an individual facing, uh, you know, either discharge. Normally, if you're discharged, it's preceded by a custodial sentence. And I'm starting to relate to the idiot, I'm afraid to say, because I, I've, I've always had that you'll never take me a live copper attitude. And it could it could be as stupid as that. I very much doubt that a private second class, uh, and I think you said he was a cavalry, cavalry scout, so yeah, some kind of armoured reconnaissance unit in South Korea. He hasn't been in the army that long. What he does know isn't worth trying to give to the North Koreans. So I think he's just had a bit of a breakdown. Now, the other night, Bruce listed his... Um, his medals on the podcast, all of which are unit and kind of it's a given awards. You know, it, here in the UK, we do um, make fun of our American cousins occasionally for the amount of um, medals that they seem to have. You know, you're lucky if you leave after 22 years in the British Army with three medals. But um, your guys wear unit citations, so that's that's honours won by their unit in the past, going all the way back to Bunker Hill, no doubt. Um, so, you know, the list of medals that Bruce read out, to my mind, and I remember thinking it when I heard it on the podcast, was, you know, this, this guy's been in the army five minutes. Uh, he might have some ribbons on his chest, but he hasn't earned them himself. And... Just look at the state of of wokeism and the standards that have been dropped in the recruitment in the U.S. military. We, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to speak out of turn or be unkind, but you and Bruce have both mentioned it, um, particularly in recent months. You're not going to get any argument from me. There's an article out today saying that there's a DOD memo. That's our Department of Defense. There was a memo that was sent out today saying that transgender soldiers on hormone therapy can now exempt themselves from any deployments. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Hopefully they're only recruiting transgender soldiers in as drone pilots and, uh, you know, remote operated vehicle um, operators. Uh, that that is just that is just ridiculous. But you see, yeah. that level of stupidity that this individual has shown, and I have got one more loose idea, and it's purely supposition. But I've seen it in 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 the army and in the navy. We had some right idiots, and I was probably one of them occasionally. We did have this guy. I don't know if I've mentioned it before on the podcast. Anyway, I'm sure I've told you about this guy. We called him Izzy. His last name was Brudenell, and he assumed that we were calling him Izzy um, because of Isambard Kingdom Brudenell, who was the, the, the great engineer and architect. But no, it was Izzy all there. You know, we, we, we were questioning whether he was in full possession of his faculties. This is the guy that decided, while the rest of us in Karachi uh, would jump into those little black and yellow taxis uh, and head into town to have a, a, a very sweet non-alcoholic drink on a veranda 
because obviously it's it, it was a dry uh, a dry town and a dry visit. He decided that he'd get one of the horse-drawn taxis. So he arrived about 45 minutes later than the rest of us, by which time we had a beautiful, comfortable seat under the air conditioning and the fans with a very sweet, sticky beverage. And he got out, paid the driver, went to pat the horse. The horse turned (laughs) and bit him. (laughs) He stepped back away from the biting horse and upturned a basket containing a cobra where a snake charmer was sat. The cobra then struck at him, but fortunately it had been defanged. Not fortunately for the snake, obviously. And then the guy's mongoose also had a go at his leg. So within the space of like three seconds, he'd been bitten by three different species of animal. Good old is he. I'll never forget that guy. But that that's that's just a an amusing story hopefully to to entertain the listener but the guy and, and there's there's no getting away from it in in british news at the moment as soon as something happens and you know damn well if it's going to be a multiple knife attack in london or some kind of drug related crime ethnicity is involved it's either going to be a middle eastern asian that's doing it for jihadi reasons or it's going to be a roadman yardy who, who thinks he's jamaican but he was born and bred in the in in the united kingdom but they never mention race or color on the news they just don't do it but we know this guy is african-american now if you look and we have looked at the manifesto for black lives matter for instance Where's it taken from? It's taken directly out of Marxism. And so it could be, and again, this is just supposition, that he's a believer and he thinks he's going to have the life he thinks he deserves in North Korea. But he would have to be pretty flipping stupid to believe that. Again, the levels of stupidity that can be displayed by some servicemen and women is incredible. You know... That that really makes me think of the the fact that it, and you you raise a really interesting point there, and that is these individuals that adopt this Marxist ideology, this revolutionary attitude here in the West that is not like that. That's not our traditions here in the West, but our institutions have been subverted with this revolutionary ideology, and it's to replace the system that we have and. What I mean, I, I've always told people that champion this ideology, even though they, they don't even realize it, because that's the whole point. Marxists and, and radical revolutionaries are very few in numbers, and so they rely on people to be recruited to carry their agenda for them. That's what gives them the ability to make it look like they are larger than what they actually are. So they need non-Marxists, non-communists to actually champion their ideas for them. That's how they're able to do this. Now, I've always told people that do this, I'm like, if you're for that, why don't you go to one of these countries? Why don't you go and and live there? Why don't you go to Cuba? Why don't you go to Russia? Why don't you go to China or North Korea or Venezuela? Why don't you go there? And they'll say, well, no, we want that here. These countries, they're not turning people away. People are not beating down the doors to get into those countries like they're trying to get into the United States or to the United Kingdom or any of the European Union countries. They're coming here. They're not going to these countries. You don't see people flooding in there saying that that's a better lifestyle. That's a better way to do things. They're actually trying to get out. Well, we've seen this in other forms as well. You know, areas of the United Kingdom have unfortunately become ghettos. Tommy Robinson, his hometown of Luton, for instance, there's areas of Luton that are so uh, Middle Eastern, uh, so, you know, Islamic, there's no other way of putting it, that, you know, that they, they, they have tried to enforce Sharia in those areas, totally illegally and without any real support from anyone else but they still go out on patrol for instance and pick on uh people who are who they think are immodestly dressed uh, and those kind of things trying to shut pubs down in those areas i've witnessed the the aggressiveness and attitude of some of these usually young men disaffected young men and they've turned to something because it they think it empowers them 
So whether it's a Marxist ideology or is it an Islamic standpoint, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It, it's something that they feel gives them the power back. And believe you me, having experienced two lots of basic training, uh, quite a few operations and time spent in the armed forces, if you can cope with it, it's fine. But for some people, they feel trapped. They want to rebel. The phrase is, don't fight the white. Got nothing to do with racism. The white being the organization, the white being the hierarchy, the, the chain of command. Don't resist it. Go with it. You'll have a much better time. But for some people, they just simply cannot do it. And I think I'm more and more leaning towards the idea that this individual simply couldn't cope with military life. And he thinks he's he's made a great choice of stepping over a border into one of the most militaristic, totalitarian, oppressive regimes on the face of the earth. Again, I'm not playing the uh, the identity politics here, but uh, he's going to stand out there. Yeah, it's not like he can go and hide anywhere. You know, I feel sorry for him. Um, oh, I do too. I I do too. Uh, I think I think we need to do we we need on our side. We need to take every measure we can to do our best to try and get him out of there. I I truly yeah, believe that for, for his own for his own benefit. Yes, and yes. he he can face whatever music he has to face afterwards. But it shouldn't be you know old Kim face and his regime that are going to make that guy's life hell. Yeah. Um, it should be a case of the U.S. Army sorting out his disciplinary problem and then putting him on the right path again. And if that right path is outside of the military, then so be it. But at least he won't be inside North Korea. And probably they're, they're not above parading people in front of the media and those kind of things, are they? No, so no, no. No, they'll, they'll I imagine, use that as a showpiece from now until the end of time. Yeah, but... Like I say, private second class, been in the army, I don't know, possibly a year, two years, not a high flyer. He hasn't got the information that, that they want that would be any use to them. Well, you did mention that you've been out on many operations before, and one area that you spent a lot of time in and you're very familiar with is the Persian Gulf. We have just deployed a whole bunch of F-16 squadrons and a number of ships to the Persian Gulf because something about the Iranians seizing some tankers or something and you guys are you're taking precautions and we're there to to back you up and um well it's not out of the realm of of possibility for them to do this uh and they uh they like seizing those tankers and you've talked about this out of the Iranians several times before would you care to comment on this well in the times when the tankers have been boarded and taken control of by the Iranians it's a bargaining chip. It's a it's a chip in the game for them. The precautions, the, the 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 best precaution is to put aside what we think is international maritime law, because it's all to do with what is and isn't Iranian territorial waters. If the vessels are in what the Iranians determine to be their territorial waters, which is contrary to what the rest of the world thinks is Iranian territorial waters. The Iranians feel justified in boarding and taking control of the tankers. J just yeah. so we're clear, to, to kind of clear up any misconceptions right off the bat, everything within the Strait of Hormuz is considered their territorial waters by their definition of things, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what has to happen is simple navigation, make sure those great big slow-moving bargaining chips are properly escorted and as far away from the east side of the Gulf as possible. We've got ships out there. Um, I, I'm not sure what the patrol is called now. It used to be called our Miller Patrol, which I have done four times, uh, escorting tankers. We've got ships out there forward deployed that are there to stop any such boardings. We've got fast helicopters. We've got Royal Marines. We've also got America. We've got the US there doing the same thing. If any of those, if if any tanker gets boarded in the next couple of months or so, someone will have made a mistake on our side. And that will be that a vessel wasn't properly escorted, wasn't monitored, 
and was too close to Iran. Iran threatens this kind of thing all of the time. At the moment, it's all they've got. It is. Uh, apart from their new uh, hypersonic missile that they were showing off a couple of weeks ago, you you recall that? I do recall the cardboard cutout you showed me. Uh, yes, that, that thing, yeah. This came this afternoon. This came across my desk this afternoon. I thought that uh, we could discuss this. Um, this, of course, we're a couple of years past the whole COVID state of emergency thing, right? So actually, I think the states of emergency are still in. I don't think they ever lifted those. But we now have some numbers from the previous couple of years and one of these particular statistics just dropped from the UK this afternoon. Over 28,000 people were convicted of breaching COVID-19 regulations in England and Wales, not including Scotland or Northern Ireland, during the COVID pandemic, with an average fine standing at a whopping 6,000 pounds which is about 7,800 US dollars for those listening to us in the US. And in some instances, as high as 10,000 pounds. Just under 16,000 of the known convictions involve people under 30, with many receiving a criminal record for minor breaches, which will, in turn, severely impact their future prospects. Senior government figures and advisors were not charged or fined by the government. However, despite the fact that they broke their own protocols. For example, I'll just give you a couple of examples here. Uh, one prof high profile individual in this case uh, includes former health secretary Matt Hancock, somebody you've talked about many times before, who was caught kissing his mistress. <laughs> I remember that. Sun Papers had the, the camera there. Who put the camera there? We've never actually gotten an answer to that question. He was kissing his mistress at the Department of Health offices in contravention of his own social distancing rules. And then, of course, your version of our sainted Dr. Anthony Fauci in the U.S., Professor Neil Ferguson from Imperial College in London, who was caught sleeping with his mistress after demanding that the lockdown measures be forced onto the public, which technically banned his own travel that he was doing. So he yeah. actually the travel wasn't allowed, but he did it anyway. According to Penelope Gibbs, who is the director of Transform Justice, which is a London based criminal reform group, said that, quote, it is ridiculous that the courts are still prosecuting people for COVID offenses. All outstanding COVID prosecutions should be canceled immediately. Yeah, it just fills me with rage, really. You know, we talked and we joked on the podcast about the, the funeral for the turkey, the cremation for the turkey at Christmas. Yes, and your pet did, turkey. Did you're, yeah. allowed, <laughs> you're allowed 25 people to come to a funeral, aren't you? Or were, whereas you're only allowed six people in your house and they had to be within your bubble and all this other bollocks that people like Ferguson, Witty, and the rest of SAGE. SAGE. It stands for Special Advisory Group for government, the government at whatever. Yeah. It's government the, one of the group. yeah one of the head advisors on that was uh, Professor Susan uh, Mickey, I think her name was, or Mishy, or something like that. Yeah. And she has a long history of being a member of the British Communist Party. She was on the BBC saying, "We're going to need these measures in here forever." We're just going to have to change people's behaviors. Well, this this is it. I mean, the, the point I was trying to make is the word sage is a synonym for wise. Bunch of f***ing wise guys, more like. The whole setup of sage, there were something like 25% medical health, virologists, immunologists, doctors formed its membership. The other 75% were behavioural scientists. It really was an exercise in population control, not size of population, but what the population does and what they'll put up with. And these fines are, they're, they're obscene. They're absolutely obscene, particularly as the government and SAGE members who broke their own regulations should have been you know, if a, if a rating in the Navy makes a mistake, they get punished. If an officer who should have known so much better makes a mistake, they get punished even more than the rating would for the same mistake. The more you know, the higher you are, the sliding scale of punishment goes up or should go up because, you know, you, you've got an example to set. The fact that it was all lies and unnecessary and, well, necessary for their agenda, but unnecessary to stop something that's got a survival rate of 99.97%. So, uh, yeah, it, it just absolutely enrages me that 
people are still, you know, facing prosecution and being fined. Some of them are still probably paying it off monthly, you know, yeah. bit by yeah. bit. Yeah, I I remember the uh, one of the most absurd things that I saw was uh, this this guy uh, or I, well, somebody whoever it was they got fined I think it was like ten thousand pounds for taking their dog for a walk in a park. It was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, uh, there were other people who were just trying to run their businesses that were fined. I think those because they were easy targets got the heaviest fines. So the dog walking guy must have been the exception that proves the rule. But the majority of the people who got the six thousand and ten thousand pound fines were business owners who were operating their their business, their livelihood, and swamped by police and shut down. There's a couple of other things here in the UK that with extreme injustices. Recently, an apology by Rishi Sunak in the House of Commons, he actually turned up for once, was to the servicemen and women who were possibly jailed and dismissed the service for being gay up until, I can't remember the exact date when in, when it was legalized it was legalized but not made compulsory thank thankfully that you could be gay and be in the armed forces i think it was about 2000 but prior to that if you were found through court martial or summary trial on board a ship or by your commanding officer ashore if you were or on land if you were raf or army you could be dismissed the service and it would be preceded by normally 6 months in jail as well Yes, it was unfair. Yes, it was, uh, you know, not a very kind thing to do to people. However, the rules were when those people joined up, no gay people. That was the that was the the rule in place. So I'm in two minds about the whole thing because what's going to happen now is all of those people that were dismissed the service and jailed, perhaps for being gay, are going to get compensation. There's going to be millions of taxpayers pounds given to these people who in against all you know natural justice were mistreated but the rule was to quote monty python i'm not going to quote monty python everyone will know which part of monty python i mean but rule one was no gay people in the armed forces it was a, a massive lie because during the Second World War, the majority of the Royal Army Medical Corps was not, as I say, majority, a high proportion were gay because that was the one part of the army that was where you needed people who, who were more caring, none of this uh, big machoism. And the recruiters, even if they suspected, would put people into the Royal Army Medical Corps. There were fighter pilots, fighter aces who were gay. But they kept it quiet, they didn't get caught, and they served their time out. The people who got caught in the armed forces since the Second World War got caught out somehow. They knew that they were going to be under scrutiny because that was the rule. So, yeah, it's against natural justice. It was an unfair treatment, but the rule at the time was what it was. One of the other Sorry to keep going on, but one of the other things that's happening in the UK at the moment, and it's still not been rectified, this is the speed at which our government and our legal system works at, you know, the speed of a striking glacier or glacier, whichever you'd prefer. People who used to run sub-post offices, there was a computer system. Uh, sorry, just for clarification purposes, uh, what is a sub-post office? Is that just like one of those things that's attached to a, a, another business of some kind that's part of a secondary part of their business or something? Yeah. So you might okay. have a, a, a local convenience store with okay, a post it. office inside it. Okay, got it. There was a computer system that they used and quite a few people were accused of theft by the post office because this computer system had some strange way of rounding up figures. And it appeared as if the sub-postmasters and mistresses were stealing from the post office, which just like in the US, if you steal from the treasury, um, it's one of the it's a it's a higher level of crime. So since they've been exonerated because it's been proven uh that you know this computer system was not functioning as it should do, you've still got 
hundreds of people waiting to be compensated for the fact that they were jailed, lost their business, lost their reputation, and are legislated. I can't say that word. You say it for me. Legislative. Yes, legislative. I can say that. It was another word very similar that I was trying for. It is moving too slow to get these people who deserve to be paid out the compensation. Uh, And for some of them, some of them took their own lives because their their whole reputation had been ruined. We have these incidences of bad justice. And I don't know, it looked like we were heading to to a, a more just and equitable world. And then all this bloody wokeism, this subversion, this move towards totalitarian control measures seems to have moved in. Uh, And again, it's slowing things down. It is. uh, It it really is. And unfortunately, my friend, we're out of time. But before we go, I do have a small surprise for you. I was hoping you would have. Yeah, I I certainly do. So you're familiar with this this group called Just Stop Oil? Yes. 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 Or as I like to call them, Just Stop just stop oil. Yeah, yeah, just stop. Well, you know, they, they're under attack now. They've been blocking traffic as they normally do. And, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, but that's one of the first things that you're taught as a child. Don't play in the street. Don't play in traffic because you will get hit by a car. That's the first thing you're taught as a kid. If a ball, you're kicking the ball around as a kid, if you kick a football out into or a soccer ball, if you're in the US, if you kick a football out into the street, don't run after it because a car could come by and hit you. Wait, yeah. look both ways and then look the other way again, you know, two, three times. Make sure there's no traffic. Go out and get your ball and get out of the street. Yeah. These people, these people, they they just they are hell bent on standing in traffic. And some of these motorists, well, the Germans, they're not putting up with it anymore. They're just getting out of their vehicles now and they're just wailing on them. Uh, the German police, uh, they're, they've gotten to the point here. They don't call themselves just stop oil here. Here it's the last generation, but they're actually using construction grade industrial adhesives and epoxies. I don't know if you've actually seen this, Marty, but they're, they're cementing their hands to either the tarmac of the roadway or airport runways. They can't remove it. You know, there's there's nothing that will remove that. We have no solvents or anything that, that will remove it. And odds are they're probably going to lose their hands. So the authorities here are just having to cut a chunk out of the, the tarmac and they're walking around with these big clumps of asphalt attached to their, their arms. Uh, it's, it's completely ridiculous. But in England, they are now fighting back as in the just stop oil people they're they're fighting back they're fighting back they have they have safety circles that they have now formed for themselves complete with face masks my name's Pia. i'm 29 years old and yesterday i was arrested peacefully protesting on the road but i'm back out here today because it is our democratic right to do so and we know that disruption is uncomfortable but it's necessary and we meet this circle of people around us and we do agree about the same things, except that we have that sense of urgency that when you see that a house is on fire, you're not going to ask permission to the people inside to call the fire. You see, they need their safety circles of the they, people around they them. They do to- need their safety circles, but you see, what you need there is about eight pikeys with two lorry loads of tarmac. <laughs> Pour it straight over the top of them and treat it as a roundabout. That's what you should do. But this is no offence to any of the travelling community who may be listening to our podcast. I'm only joking. What we've got here is a group of people who absolutely believe what they're saying and what they're doing is important. And the people who are funding them to do it are doing it not because they believe the, the planet is burning, despite the the best efforts of um, the Met Office here in the UK to show every map in in deep shades of red when the temperatures are you know just nice for summer. Obviously, there's there's fires in in Greece at the moment, which are naturally occurring things. And even when we were in the Greek islands uh, a couple of weeks ago, now it all seems such a long time ago. A fire started. Um, behind the hotel and people responded quickly, damped down the area and it didn't didn't grab hold. 
So yes, things are happening, but no, it's not out of the out of the norm. It's perfectly normal summer weather, and weather does climate does change, and it has always changed. And we're in actually a cooling cycle at the moment, not a warming cycle, a cooling cycle. Actually, we're we're at the peak of that warming, and we're we're actually starting to trend back down. Okay, well, obviously, we we you get input from lots of yeah, different yeah. places. Yeah. Um, but the consensus of sensible people who aren't being funded by George Soros or Bill Gates or Cheney is it Cheney? Who's the who's the not Cheney? Who's the uh, the carbon capture king? Car- oh, uh, 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 John Kerry. John Kerry. Kerry. Sorry. Yeah. Cheney. Kerry. It's all the same to me. Yeah, it's all the same. Yeah. But. What we mustn't do, people, is yes, we must remove these misguided, deluded individuals out of the road so you can go about your business. Do that by all means. But obviously, if they're sat in a big circle like that, you are going to have to have have help. You can't expect that help to come from the police because the police won't do it. And if they did do it, they would actually be breaking down your rights in the future to protest and it will come. We've already had the, and again, Melissa mentioned it uh, about what you saw in Germany with the walking protests by, by the German people over the COVID restrictions. That had to be allowed. Our protests about the bullshit about COVID, the excess deaths, the cashless society, the central bank digital currencies, and all of the other nonsense that are being forced upon us by these agendas, we still need the right to peaceful protest. And that right is being eroded through the field of public opinion, like we mentioned earlier. I'm sure we did we mention the podcast or was that in prep? Honestly, all these things run together, my friend. I I don't you, remember. We'll find out. We'll find out yeah. in the edit anyway. We'll figure it but out, figure it out in post, yeah. Through public opinion, the government are gonna find it easier to put more and more restrictions on protests the longer idiots like Just Stop Oil carry on doing what they're doing because people are fed up with it and that will give the government all the excuse they need to change the law. And then when you want to protest about something, you're not going to be able to. You're absolutely right. It's been a pleasure, my friend. We'll see you next week. Yes, yes, you will. Or will you? Will I be doing a show? We'll have to get together at some point, maybe a bit earlier. Maybe we can can switch days, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I need my catharsism. I need to get things off my chest. Thank you very much. I will now stop talking. You're always welcome here to, to express your considered and informed opinion that we're all welcome to. As you said in the very first podcast that you were on, we look forward to that every week. I've stopped talking. You made me talk again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I talk so much that I, I just get sick of it myself. I'm glad you stopped in today and I'll see you next week, my friend. It's been an absolute right, pleasure. That will do it for today and for this week. I'd like to thank you for being here today, Marty. Thank you to all of the listeners. God bless everyone. Have a great weekend and we will see you you next week.